Hi, my name is Alana Goldberg. I'm the, I'm the CEO of The Kenigma. It's an evidence-based content information site on cannabis. Curious about Cannabis Podcast. Special thanks to our current annual educational event sponsors, including The Workshop, CBD National, and Green Earth Medicinals. If you want to learn more about our Curious About Cannabis events, go to cacpodcast.com slash events. And if your company would like to become an event sponsor, visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn more. Hey everybody, this is Jason with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I am very delighted to finally be catching up. We've, we've tried to do this interview. Uh, this is the third time we've tried to do this interview. We finally made it happen today. I'm here with Alana Goldberg from the Kenigma. Um, Alana, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. And thanks for being willing to try three times to make it happen. <laughs> Third time's the charm, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be doing this, Jason. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm really excited to finally be able to uh, sit down and and dive a little bit into your story and and to share with the listeners here just what the Kenigma is. And um, it's been this excellent resource that's kind of popped up. Um, I don't know. Did it pop up around like 2019 or so? Is that around when yeah, the Kenigma exactly. got started? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's been fun to watch the uh, the evolution um, of the platform and and everything like that. So we'll um, dive right in here. So um, for our listeners, can you describe a little bit of just what is the Kenigma? And then we'll talk a little bit about you and how you got connected to it. Absolutely. So the Kenigma is a website. I suppose that's the simplest way to say it. Um, we aspire to be the go-to uh, resource for any practical or theoretical cannabis question. Um, so what that means is we have a bunch of articles, thousands of articles on cannabis. We also create videos. We have a podcast too, the Cannabis Enigma podcast. Um, a lot of graphic content as well, infographics. Um, and really, our at the angle that we take here is kind of translating what we know from the science. Uh, what the evidence is telling us about cannabis into language that anyone can understand um, and make use of. Um, and so the way we do that, I think our special source, and you know, this is something that you're already involved in, is our scientific advisory board. Um, we have a team of advisors. Actually, you know, I should say advisory board because uh, at the beginning it was really, uh, you know, scientists, uh, healthcare uh, providers, but we've also just added a culinary expert um, yep. to our team and a regulatory expert. Um, so, you know, we really have advisors across the space and they help us make sure that this content is all credible and and, um, you know, also accessible, uh, understandable for, you know, the average reader. Oh, yeah. And that's um, one thing that I really liked when I saw how the Kenigma was um, kind of unfolding is I liked that it was obvious you had a review process. You know, it was mm -hmm. obvious that it wasn't just it, it wasn't just a content mill, which is kind of what's really common out there, especially around cannabis. Um, you know, there are all of these kind of quote unquote, media companies that pop up around cannabis and their single mission in life is to pump out articles as quickly as possible with all of the catchy keywords and SEO so that they can pop up on the first page of Google. 
And it's a lot of regurgitation of myth and hyperbole and um, not really any fact-checking. And a lot of the folks that are writing the articles really have no um, expertise that would empower them to approach the articles that they're writing in a, a kind of deeper way. And so there's there's just a lot of, you know, it's just such a hot topic. There's just so much cannabis media out there and I ignore 90% of it. And so <laughs> when I saw, you know, what the Kenigma was trying to do and I saw that, you know, oh, these articles are getting reviewed. So at least there's like some quality control on the information that's going out there and then learning about the advisory board. And then of course I was, I was really humbled and, and stoked when, um, Cody got me connected with you, uh, Cody Peterson, who's been on the podcast before we've talked together and things. Um, and now to be involved in contributing to, to those articles, um, it's super exciting. Cause I don't think there are, there are many other, um, outlets that are trying to approach it the way that the Kenigma is of really trying to be mindful of the information that's getting out there and trying to take that responsibility for the science and for, you know, the, the accuracy of the information, which is why I want my listeners to know about it and, and to find the Kenigma and start, um, including that in our sort of laundry list of curious about cannabis educational resources. Um, cause I always try to highlight the good ones when I see them. Um, and so tell us, yeah. tell us a bit about how you got connected to the Kenigma. Cause I know you have an extensive, um, journalistic background, um, before getting involved in cannabis. That's right. Yeah. My background is as a journalist. Uh, I started off my career just after I moved to Israel about 16 years ago, uh, working at the Jerusalem Post. Um, that's the largest English language yeah. uh, newspaper here in Israel. Um, I started off as a breaking news editor. So, uh, you know, writing news uh, updates round the clock, uh, translating from the Hebrew media, um, from various different press sources, also getting Arabic translations when we kind of zoomed out uh, to the region at large. So very fast paced, um, very intense. Um, and I think really what got me hooked on digital content creation at that point was this, this game, I suppose, of putting things in front of, you know, anonymous, uh, users. There are people as yeah. it turns out, these, these <laughs> things we them. call users, they're people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Some of them are bots, but <laughs> I prefer talking to the, the real people, um, and, and understanding how they react to what mm -hmm. you put in front of them, you know, what's their behavior on a website, what kind of headlines get people to click, what kind of page design, uh, encourages people to move on to reading another article on the website. Um, so that was really fascinating to me and I continued uh, building up a number of different uh, websites once I moved on from the Jerusalem Post in the nonprofit space and then uh, really much more kind of classic digital marketing uh, in the performance marketing space. Um, and I joined up with the other founders of the Kenigma where they were really at the point where like they'd gotten some funding and they had an idea. Um, and the idea was basically to get credible information about cannabis in front of the people who need it in you know all different markets and jurisdictions that open up you know weekly, daily, monthly yeah, around really. the world. Uh, it was you know really an opportunity. Um, so we started building out the content at that point. And you know that you mentioned the evolution of the Kenigma, and there really has been something um, of an evolution. We started off with a very medical focus, mm -hmm. um, and as we started creating this core of content, we came to understand that. 
for a lot of the topics um, that we were covering didn't really make any difference whether the, the end user, the consumer or the patient, was using the plant for medical reasons or for recreational reasons. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you're asking a question like, why does cannabis make my heart race? It doesn't matter whether you're smoking right. a joint with friends on the weekend or you're using it, I don't know, to help your father treat his Parkinson's disease. It just doesn't matter. Um, and so we kind of... Um, settled into what is very much our voice and our, our beat uh, at this point, which is uh, evidence-based content. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, often, you know, this better than anyone that, you know, sometimes we're explaining what we know from the research and, and contextualizing the research. And sometimes we're explaining that there simply is not any research right. and that we have to kind of draw conclusions from different places. And then obviously translating all of this into language, which, which anyone can understand. Because, you know, most of the information that we're working with, most of the the sources for our content, they're available to anyone. You know, anyone can go yeah. and spend a day on PubMed and theoretically educate themselves. But, you know, you have to know how to read a study and yep. to be able to understand the limitations of a study and to, you know, contextualize it, like I mentioned. Um, so that's kind of, you know, really been the evolution for us. And then, as you said before, uh, building out that scientific advisory board has been crucial. Um, and the, the, the advisory board and also that rigorous, a review and editing process mm-hmm. has been crucial to to kind of uh, developing and then maintaining this this standard of content. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you touched on some good points <clears throat> regarding, um, you know, kind of seeing what's resonating with people and and what are mm-hmm. the core elements that are encouraging people to actually jump into an article and read and and that sort of thing. And so, I guess I have a two part question. One is you know, going back to your days at the Jerusalem Post, what were some things that you really learned about content creation that resonated with people? Like what were some big takeaways from that experience that you then carried over into the Kenigma as you were mm-hmm. wrestling with this project? And then the second part to the question is, since the Kenigma, what are some things that you've learned about, you know, specifically with cannabis content, what's kind of resonating with people? Absolutely. You know, we're learning every day. I, I was just yeah. uh, I was just lamenting the other day that I picked up my uh, my thesis that I wrote uh, for my degree, which was actually on the development of the Ulpan system, which is the Hebrew education system oh, okay. uh, oh. here in Israel. Yeah, it's really interesting. Just like in one word, basically, they developed a, a pedagogic system of teaching a language in the language that you're teaching. Oh. So from day one, the teacher gets up and only speaks in Hebrew. Yeah, uh, It's like, you know, it's, it's pretty similar to the way kids learn language. Anyway, yeah. so I, I read my university thesis, which I got fantastic marks and feedback on, and I really liked it. And I read it and I was like, oh my god what is this i can't believe i let people read this this is terrible what is this writing you know so we're learning every day and sometimes yep. i even feel that way about the content on the Kenigma. you know we've been at this for less than three years and sometimes i see you know one of our our uh, first articles that we created i'm just like what who approved this um so definitely learning it all the time what did i learn from the jerusalem post sex drugs and rock and roll you know it works and luckily in the cannabis space we got the drugs yeah least, i've already so got one third of the triad that's it so lots of sex content uh, anything to do with music obviously works well uh in the cannabis space as well um 
Well, you know, that's a that's a blessing and a curse, that sort of understanding, because it's really easy to fall into the trap of just going for the, you know, what we know as clickbait. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at the Jerusalem Post, we had this really cool AI kind of layer that we tried out on the website um, that would uh, categorize and rank all of the content on the website and then like on the homepage, mm-hmm. let's say, of the website and then give us predictions as to, okay, if you move this article, which is currently sitting at number four, if you move that up to number one, you would get 50 15% more clicks. Oh, interesting. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah, great. But if you're running a news website, it doesn't help me that this, you know, this AI layer keeps telling me that I should just put the article about uh, Barra Feli. I don't know if you know her. She's an Israeli supermodel. She's uh, got a bit of international fame. So, obviously, if I put the hot woman at the top of the <laughs> right. website, I'm going to get the most clicks. But, like, I'm trying to report the news here. So, I think more than, you know, learning what kind of topics or, or, um, you know, uh, subjects really, uh, you know, get people to click. It's about learning how to balance the data and mm-hmm. balance your your marketing goals with editorial judgment and, and journalistic considerations always. Um, and that's, you know, definitely something that I've brought into um, what we're doing at the Kenigma, that we always have to think about, okay, yeah, great. If I write an article on how Snoop Dogg microwaves his joints, <laughs> I'll probably be able to get, apparently he does, uh, blunts. Maybe he microwaves the blunts. Anyway, don't quote me on that. Uh, but yeah, cool. I might get a lot of clicks, but am I teaching anyone anything? Are we actually close to our mission? Can I explain from the science what happens when you microwave a blunt? Like, do I actually have something to say here? Uh, You know, it's also like, okay, so every state that uh, that legalizes, I could easily write an article mm-hmm. on that, but why am I going to like, what do I really have to contribute? What do I have to say as an evidence-based cannabis education website? Like if I don't have something mm-hmm. unique, original, meaningful to say, I don't, you know, I don't really see why we should be putting, um, our resources into that. So that's, yeah. you know, a uh, kind of one, like, I don't know, group of insights. Um, I think I definitely brought with me from those, those early days at the J post. Um, and more recently, wow, okay, so I think a big thing that I learned uh, when we were first getting started, so I'd been, you know, running editorial teams for a number of years when, when I started building out the Kenigma's editorial operation. And, and what I'd done in the past was I had a, a core team of fantastic journalists that I'd worked with, both in the journalist space, but also, you know, in, in marketing content um, for the, this nonprofit site I was working for. So I just figured, you know, cannabis is just another topic like anything else, right? I'll bring these great writers. They'll do some research. They always research a topic. And then great, we'll create fantastic content. Well, no, it it did not pass (laughs) the review board. Let's put it that way. There's just so much nuance when it comes. And it's not that it can't be learned. Like, you know, I came in with, my own story with cannabis, but really arguably no uh, kind of nothing but experiential uh, cannabis knowledge. And I've learned and I think I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty fluent um, in these these broader topics. I'm not a scientist. I do not do the scientific review, but I do understand now how to, you know, what we were talking about before, you know, how to understand a study. I understand the main, um, you know, pieces of myth and misinformation yeah. that are very common and how to identify them and not to fall in there. But not going to do that sort of work with every freelancer you brought in. Mm -hmm. So what I learned at that point is that I needed cannabis writers, or maybe I even needed people who were not writers, but they were cannabis experts and, you know, they could get their ideas out and then I can massage, you know, I can edit or or my team uh, can work with that. So, and sometimes it's about pairing a writer with the appropriate expert so that you can have something Mm. which is well written and easy to understand, but the expert is actually, you know, dictating the 
the the information in there, the, the yeah. educational and scientific parts of the piece. So that was a really big learning. Um, and then another thing I think, which is just impossible to ignore in this space is how to work with the restrictions on digital advertising on the cannabis mm -hmm. space. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, in the past working in even some very questionable industries would be able to lean on, you know, the big media platforms, the Facebook meta, yeah. uh, Google. And of course we don't have that luxury or if we do, it's very unreliable in the cannabis space. So I do look at this as a bit of a kind of silver lining that it, it, it requires, it, it means that we have to be creative mm -hmm. um, about the way we market. So working out how to tap into new audiences, to partner with, uh, you know, even competition, mm -hmm. uh, quote unquote, in order to expand our audience and make sure that, you know, this, this valuable content, I mean, I believe it's valuable, that we're creating actually gets in front of people because I hate creating yeah. content that doesn't get seen. That's the worst. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned <clears throat> your personal connection. What is your personal story with cannabis? Um, before coming in here, what sort of foundational knowledge and experience did you have um, that you brought with you into the Kenigma? Yeah. So, I mean, the majority of my early cannabis uh, learning took place behind the scout hall that was opposite the school that I went to in Sydney with a whole lot of bongs that we made out of <laughs> Gatorade bottles and oh, garden boy. hoses and yep. alfoil. And yeah, so, you know, around, around 13 or 14, I started <laughs> uh, getting introduced to the plant. And I think, you know, then I was I liked it and I was having fun. I right. mean, that's what I would have told you at the time. But looking back, I think I was always using cannabis for, for therapeutic purposes. I was using it to ease anxiety, to help with sleep, uh, maybe a bit of social anxiety as mm -hmm. well. And I think it was also about, um, you know, I enjoyed exploring different states of consciousness. I enjoy thinking in different ways, uh, experiencing my mind in different states. And I think, you know, that was just the beginning of my exploration of that kind of um, side of things. Uh, so that started, you know, in my teenage years, carried me all the way through my 20s, actually took a, a nice big break from from cannabis uh, that happened to be right around the time that I was um, having my kids. So mm -hmm. while I was pregnant and breastfeeding, so that was yeah. uh, about an eight year stint between when I was 30 and a few years ago. And then unsurprisingly, when I started working, uh, you know, uh, building out the Kenigma, me and the plant found ourselves again. And what I've really enjoyed in, in like, you know, my, uh, my part B of my own personal cannabis experience has been, um, you know, using the plant, consuming cannabis with the knowledge that yes. I have, like yeah. understanding, you know, I, I look back on things and like, I used to think, oh, I must just be having a bad day because weed doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. sit so well, but probably I was getting all different types of cannabis and I was completely yeah. unaware that there was in Australia, our categorization was we either had what we called natch or hyge. Ah. Australians shorten everything. So it's either natural or hydroponic. Yep. But like, that's not a categorization. That's just like shitty weed or slightly that's so funny. shitty weed. So, so yeah. to, to juxtapose that, when I was growing up, we had, you know, what you would call Reggie, which would be like mm -hmm. your, your regular, you know, basic or mids, you know, they would call it. And then we had hydro, 
or drow, mm-hmm. you know, which uh, yeah. wasn't even didn't even necessarily mean that the cannabis was grown hydroponically. It was just this perception that hydroponic cannabis was somehow more potent than yeah. regular cannabis. Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, really, when I think about, it, I mean, I can, I can picture what match and hives looked like, and really, it was about you know the, the quality of the entire cultivation process. It was about you know, was I buying something that was filled with stems and seeds yep. and leaves? Yep. Or was I buying something that was like a nice hard nug? Um, so yeah, uh, I, and 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 I think like coming back into it with this understanding, with obviously like a more mature outlook mm-hmm. as well. And a big thing has been that like you know during that eight year period that I wasn't consuming cannabis, and even a few years before that, I really started to get into mindfulness meditation. And so I remember the first time I consumed cannabis again after this big break, it was like oh, I can actually watch my mind. I'm mm-hmm. not like mindlessly. Mm-hmm. And also I was, you know, I was not into like getting crazy high anymore. Right. I was like looking for a little bit of relaxation or a little bit of giggles or, you know, whatever it was. And I was able to really um, observe how the nature of my thoughts was different after consuming cannabis, how the sensations in my body were different, how food felt different, you know, yeah. all of these different things with like, you know, I don't know about you, but I feel like mindfulness is often kind of like a superpower that it's like, yes. wow, I yes. can like see all this detail that wasn't there before. And so that's been something I've really enjoyed um, about kind of like reintegrating cannabis into my life in a more, in a more intentional way. Well, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I was the next place I wanted to go because you mentioned that you were very interested in just consciousness and trying to observe and understand consciousness. I definitely uh, wanted to spin the conversation in that direction because that resonates with me very deeply, something I've always been fascinated in. Um, And (laughs) if anyone listening doesn't know to give people context of my interest in these things. I, you know, I was a preacher's kid. So I grew up with, <laughs> with that background and always thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in undergraduate, before I transitioned into the natural sciences, I got a philosophy degree. So I've spent way too much time thinking about thinking and, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to, to hear that. And I want to kind of unpack um, that side of your interests um, a little bit more. Hey everybody, it's Jason from Curious About Cannabis. If you're as interested in understanding the science of cannabis as I am, then I want to invite you to a really special event, the 2022 Curious About Cannabis Ultimate Learning Experience, happening at ultimate.cacpodcast.com, starting on August 11th and running all the way through Thanksgiving. You'll get to meet and learn from many of your favorite podcast guests from the show, including people like Murphy Murray, Dr. Kevin Spellman, Kyle Boyer, Jonathan Mintel, who you might know as Botanic Chemist on social media, Nurse Janice Champagne, Dr. Anthony Smith, Dr. Cody Peterson, and a lot more. Join us as we learn about cannabis botany, chemistry, extraction science, cannabis testing, cannabinoid pharmacology, the endocannabinoid system, and a lot more. Just go to ultimate.cacpodcast.com to sign up today. And when you sign up, you'll get sent a box of awesome educational tools, including uh, both physical and a downloadable version of the Curious About Cannabis book, plus a terpene kit from the workshop, a cannabis journal from Goldleaf, and more. But that's not all. Every attendee of the Curious About Cannabis Ultimate Learning Experience will get six months of free access to the online Curious About Cannabis Learning Center. 
and that's home to all sorts of cannabis science self-paced courses, educational resources, including every episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Plus, we may just have a few other surprises for you along the way as well. It's the Curious About Cannabis Ultimate Learning Experience. It starts August 11th. It runs 15 weeks all the way to Thanksgiving. We've never done an event this big before, and truth be told, we might not have a chance to do another one for at least a couple of years. There are currently 15 spots. Oh, wait, nope, make that 14 spots. We have 14 spots open, so if you want to lock in your spot, just go to ultimate.cacpodcast.com and sign up today. That's ultimate.cacpodcast.com. And if you think you're not quite ready to take on the challenge of this workshop as a student, you also have the option of signing up as a spectator. So you can check that out as well. Just go to ultimate.cacpodcast.com to learn more. So you mentioned mindfulness. Um, I think it might be good to define what you mean by mindfulness because it's become such a uh, common term used in our mm -hmm. in our culture so I'd, I'd like you to unpack that a little more are you talking about more like formal um you know mindfulness practice like something you might um learn either in therapy or through you know like i was a big follower of Thich Nhat han i love watching mm -hmm. um you know his dharma talks and stuff and um practicing that way so um, yeah, please explain to me a little bit more about your your interest in mindfulness, exactly what you mean by that term, and and then we're going to dive into that. I'm very fascinated. Yeah, definitely. I want to hear about your practice a little bit as well. So, I mean, from from the words you're using, I'm, I'm thinking we're probably uh, we're probably like swimming in, in similar circles here. Uh, I was first introduced um, to to meditation, I suppose, in yeah. general, um, from two different directions. First of all, was through Kundalini yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, for anyone who yeah. doesn't know what that is, it's generally a combination of like very intense repetitive movements and then periods of stillness. And there was something that just made, uh, mindful or made meditation accessible for me in that it was like, calming the body via this movement and then able to, you know, being able to settle in and just be with my present experience yeah. for you know certain certain periods and so that was a bit of a gateway for me and I remember a close friend of mine this must have been like 15 years ago went on his first vipassana retreat um so this is a, a buddhist style of meditation basically mindfulness is is one part of, of vipassana meditation which has been very much brought to the uh west largely by this group of teachers uh who you know you might have heard of i'm sure many of your listeners have heard of uh including john cabot zinn jack cornfield tara brack um sharon salzberg um and they went and spent some time over in the east uh in, in the 70s and then brought these practices back to the united states and, and kind of uh infiltrated the the western world with these practices so my friend went on this retreat he was like a completely different person when he came back i remember sitting around smoking bongs with him when he got back from the retreat just being like this is a different guy. He's like, he's got a different look in his eyes. He's talking differently. Yet it seemed really extreme to me to go and do what he called, what I called actually silent camp that he's gone, <laughs> yeah, gone yeah, up right. for 12 days to silent camp. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to do silent camp. And sure enough, you know, as he started talking about it, I started to get curious and actually taught myself um, by the use of a, a fantastic uh, book. It's like, I, I look at it as the you know, kind of the Bible uh, of mindfulness meditation uh, by Mahasi, uh, a, a very uh, well-known mm -hmm. um, 
mindfulness teacher or, or vipassana teacher um and it's basically like to get to your question of defining what is mindfulness um it's basically a non-judgmental uh, observation or awareness of the present moment and that can be what's going on in our uh, mental experience uh, which can be like thoughts and feelings um, or it can be in our physical experience or it could even be observing uh, kind of stimulus uh, that the body can observe. So mm -hmm. for example, if you're sitting and just being aware of the sounds that are going on around you, that's mindfulness. Yeah. Um, if you're washing the dishes and your focus is all on washing the dishes and you're feeling the soap on your hands and hearing the clink of the dishes um, and feeling the temperature of the water, then that's mindfulness. You know, this is mindfulness is a, is a state that we're all, we all have access to and we all kind of, um, have different times where we're in this flow um, but the, the practice the formal practice of cultivating it does generally take place um on the traditionally on the pillow like in a seated yeah. position but you know mindfulness <laughs> practice can be standing it can be walking it can be lying down those are the four uh traditional uh postures mm -hmm. um of, of vipassana meditation um and for me uh i know this is kind of getting a bit ahead of your question but i love talking about this stuff. no it's great um yeah, I really feel like I, I learned a different way of, of being through these practices, um, of being able to be in control um, to the extent that we are able to right, be in control yes. <laughs> yeah, of my own of my own responses, you know, rather than just like constantly being on autopilot and responding that, you know, for the listeners, that's me like clicking my fingers into the microphone here, um, <laughs> just being on autopilot, just like stimulus response, stimulus response all the time. And I don't really know what's going on. What learning to to kind of bring this uh, mindfulness into my day-to-day -day life has given me is the ability to see, oh, okay, something's happened. I'm feeling a bit mm -hmm. triggered. There's some anger coming up. Okay, maybe this is a conversation I want to have later, whatever it is. Um, or, you know, simply realizing, oh, I'm tired and I need to go to bed. It's like it sounds right. really simple, but I don't think I knew how to do that beforehand before I, I kind of uh, dug into these practices. No, I, I agree. I, for me... And, and it's like you said, you, you practice and you, you do the best you can. Um, but you're, you're never always in control, but mm -hmm. it is kind of like, uh, for me, what mindfulness felt like when I first started to really get into it, which was kind of, it's, it's weird looking back on now. Cause I don't know that I've ever really talked about it. I'm like, it was around end of high school or something that I started to <laughs> really get interested in it um throughout college is when i really started to try to practice it and now it's become just kind of um uh, i don't even think about it that much it's just kind of something that i do at different times um but it's not something i have like a reserved space for each day or anything and and something um i really liked about Thich Nhat han was his focus on that meditation is not something that you have to like some people get the most benefit out of sitting in one place and doing it, but it's something that can be done while there's action happening, while there's other things happening, while you're walking, while you're doing chores, whatever, that there's, you know, ways to meditate in all of those activities. And that was something that really attracted me towards that. Cause I had a lot of trouble sitting in one place and trying mm -hmm. to, to meditate. And I have a very active, loud, uh, chattery mind. Um, 
Um, but the idea of being that able is the nature of the mind. It is. Yeah. It is the monkey mind, <laughs> and that's it. And um, so this idea that but that's really the point, right? Like yes, the idea yeah. is being able to take this into our day to day life. The sitting on the cushion, or by the way, it doesn't need to be sitting on the cushion. It can be lying down. It can be walking. Right. Whatever it is, that's practice. That's why they call it practice. Exactly. Because you're just literally the same as like you know when you lift weights. The point is not lifting of the lifting of the weights. The point is. That you know, then when you have to lift your suitcase off the belt at the airport, you're not going to break your back. <laughs> exactly. Like that's the point. Or so that with me, when I end up with my five-year-old on my shoulders all the time, my back's strong. Like that's the point of doing the you know workouts that I do. Well, and that's you know, it's funny you you bring up uh, kids because I found that you know having a kid now, my kid's almost three and a half. That has been the the biggest challenge to my mindfulness practice is trying hmm. to remember um to engage those those tools skills etc um when they're most needed while i'm raising her because uh when you talk about like chaos and becoming an automaton uh when you're lost in someone else's schedule and trying to keep track of all these different things going on and maybe she's having a meltdown about something or whatever um it is extremely hard to uh um, even just like remember that like breathing is a thing you can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's actually a thing you're doing all the time right, yeah, yeah, that you can come back into, you know, and ground yeah, yourself. Always in. There. And, yeah. um, it's, it's been interesting because mindfulness has been kind of raised back and like thrust right back in my face over the past several years. Um, because of that, because I started to realize as I was getting stressed out, worked up, whatever, um, in trying to just deal with the normal issues that come with raising, especially a toddler, where they can mm-hmm. actually speak back to you. Um, there's all sorts of crazy times <laughs> that come with that. Um, it, it really touches on how important it is to remind yourself that you do have the ability to respond and not react. And, mm-hmm. um, and that it is a muscle, that it is something that if you're not practicing, it becomes harder to remember that you don't have to be an automaton. <laughs> um, and and that these these tools and things are available. Um, right. Well, when you're exhausted and triggered exactly. and stressed. The exhaustion it's more is... difficult. Yeah, <laughs> that's a thing. I think like what, you know, I, I've really noticed from the beginning with my kids that can be a challenge or it can be such an opportunity because mm-hmm. you know the thing is with kids is they are in the moment all the time right. they haven't yet learned to like be dwelling on the past or freaking out about the future all the time they are entirely present and if we can just you know get over our own shit going around in yeah. our head like yeah. you know the monkey mind you mentioned before and just be there with them Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what it's all about, you know? And kids are always in the moment. You know, when a kid is having a meltdown, they're not thinking, oh, I've got to suppress my feelings because I can't, you know, look like a softie in front of that person. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is what's going on. This feeling mm-hmm. coming up. Blah! You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Absolutely. And so and that's, I think that's the, that's the invitation for us as well to say, all right, well, I had plans to put dinner on the table, but it seems like we're lying on the floor at the moment. So let's get down on the floor, you know? <laughs> yeah. And being, being able to, uh, again, like you mentioned, um, that one thing with mindfulness is sort of like finding this flow state almost, um, mm-hmm. um, so much of the stress of being a parent can soften up so much 
when you find those yeah. flow states. Uh, it can be very oh, challenging, absolutely. especially if when you're sleep deprived. time didn't exist. Yeah. Right. If you're sleep deprived or if you're like, I, how many times do I have to ask you to put your shoes on just right. get out the door? We've got to leave know? now. <laughs> right. But if, if you know, if, if, if I was able to realize, you know, and the time that I am able to stop myself and say, like, come on, Alana, how much difference is it really going to make if yeah. you're three minutes later to school this morning, yeah. you know, and how much more, you know, flowy is the more? And, of course, the irony of it is, that when you surrender, things just move. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like the, uh, um, what is it? The old Chinese finger traps, you know, that you mm -hmm. do. if you pull too hard, they get tighter. But if you relax, you can just slip your fingers out. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's a, it's a constant series of reminders and, and lessons. That's for sure. Um, yeah. And I really feel like this loops in with cannabis yes, as well. Absolutely. You know? Like my first few years of parenting, I was not using cannabis and I've seen how, you know, even if it's simply like the joint after my kids mm -hmm. have gone to sleep, how I'm able to make that line is like, there's always like all this stress around bedtime. And again, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. what, what difference does it make if they go to bed five minutes later? But sometimes it does make a difference because all of my calls with the United States yep, end up being a lot of my calls with the United States are after. And so I'm in this hurry, I'm hurrying them into bed. And then the second they fall asleep, I'm like, oh, I love them so much. They're so sweet when they're asleep, <laughs> you know? And I can go and like have that joint and make that line and be like, okay, so I'm putting that stage and now I've got my adult stage yes, of the yeah. evening ahead of me. But even more than that, I've found that, you know, again, understanding types of cannabis and, and dosage is, is really important here, but a couple of tokes of, of the right type of flower, something which is really like uh, generally limonene and pinene dolan is mm -hmm. what works well for me. Um, before an afternoon of playing with them means that I am just so much more fun and yeah. I'm able to get into that like creative space, the imaginative mm -hmm. play, able to have a little bit more patience. And like, you know, sometimes it's mindfulness that helps like with that. And sometimes it's a bit of weed and, you know, I look at them both as, as kind of like uh, tools in my parenting toolkit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting too. You're touching on a, I think a, an important topic, uh, which is the, you know, there's an interesting taboo that is kind of changing right now. We're kind of in the middle of this taboo changing right now of parents that use cannabis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, previously, there's always been this kind of general feeling among cultures across the world that parents that use cannabis, that that's a, a bad thing or, you know, mm -hmm. especially, oh, my gosh, are you watching your kids? Are you watching your kids yeah. while you're stoned? Like, oh, my God. Um and now yeah, that, a couple of glasses of wine is totally fine. Right, right, exactly. Or like you're yeah, you're yeah, having a, a beer. Yeah. Um but even even outside of that, um, you know, as people are as laws are loosening up, people are talking more and sharing about their experiences. We're learning like actually there are a lot of parents that are cannabis users that have just been keeping it quiet, keeping it secret. They don't want to lose their kids, you know, if they live in a prohibitionist state. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, I can say from my own experience that when I'm having a particularly bad day where I'm exhausted in a bad mood and, you know, my daughter's just being a kid, not really, you know, but I'm in that super irritable thought loop um, that I can't mm -hmm. seem to get out of even just one small drag off of something 
will interrupt that thought loop and send me somewhere else, which is really a lot of times all you need in order to just get into a more productive headspace and and be able to get back into that flow. Um, but the idea I that, would even argue that there's like some mindfulness involved in there as well. Yes. That it's like your ability to recognize that you're in a bad mood. Yes. It's not that your kid is yeah. being, you know, a pain in the ass. It's right. that you're in a bad mood. There are certain thoughts and, and like a, a, a texture or a timbre of mm-hmm. thought which, which you're aware of and you've decided, okay, I have a choice here. I can continue in this or I can do something about it, yeah. you know? And it's like just the fact that you've brought your attention to it, I think is, is, uh, crucial in turning that around. Absolutely. And that takes practice of trying mm-hmm. to just like recognize like, oh yeah, I've only had two hours of sleep in the past three days. Like that's probably why I'm an asshole right now to everybody I meet. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe there's something I can do. I've been working also on like, yeah, sorry. I cut you oh no, go for it. I was just going to say that I've been actually working on also expressing this to my kids saying to them, I've had a really intense day and I feel that I'm in a bit of a stressed mood at the moment because I want to encourage mm-hmm. them to be able to identify these, you know, emotions for themselves, you know, going up. My my uh, my five-year-old, my dad was here visiting uh, a couple of months ago and when he left, my five-year-old told him, I feel sad and mad that you're leaving. And I was like, this is, That's this great. is you know, next level yeah. stuff, a five-year-old being able to identify that she has these two simultaneous feelings. She's upset that he's leaving and she's a little bit angry at him and she like feels like he's, you know, mm-hmm. leaving her. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I've been working on that as well. Like, you know, sorry if I'm a little impatient. I've, I've had a really stressful day before I picked you guys up this afternoon. Um, and again, that comes down to, you know, the, the mindfulness and the intentionality. Well, yeah, and that modeling, because, I mean, we mirror each other, mm-hmm. you know, whoever we're around regularly, we tend to mirror each other. And um, and that's that's something that my wife and I try to do with our daughter, too, especially my wife is a um, mental health therapist. So she mm-hmm. thinks about a lot of these things in terms of emotional uh, communication and things. Um, she thinks yeah. about a lot. And so important. it is, and it, you know, it's something that I undervalued until I spent more time with her and was forced to think more about, you know, all mm-hmm. these sort of things. I mean, just emotional intelligence and, you know, social learning and stuff. Um, but just that simple modeling of describing how you feel, I think we, especially as adults, because we're often in our sort of professional modes most of the time with the people we're around and we put on a a costume for people. And that's sort of a a weird uh, uh, mod of who we actually are. And we Mm -hmm. tend to not want to express how we're actually feeling to people, but rather send them impressions of what we think they want to see. Um, Right. It's, uh, you know, we don't communicate our feelings very much. We don't actually verbalize to the people around us how we actually feel, what we're actually going through um, on a regular basis. And these days, I think a lot about what that does long term psychologically mm-hmm. um, when we don't just verbalize what we're going through to other people, whether we're afraid of what sort of weird blowback we might get professionally or, you know, um, or whatever, or being scared that we're coming across weak if we're experiencing emotions or feelings that hinder our performance in some way, which that's also just a kind of commentary on our weird obsession with like performance and like professional 
performance that like, I have to be, you know, I have to perform all the time and I can't be human. I can't, (laughs) I can't have a bad day or, or, you know, carve out time for myself to emotionally respond to whatever just happened to me in life. Um, right. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you made a really like, good point there of like, that you can't just be human, but what is being human? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for, for a, a number of generations and certainly in Western society, the idea has been to get rid of the bad emotions and to have as many of the good emotions as possible. Good sensations in general. Let's make sure that we feel good mm-hmm. all the time. And that expectation is just completely unrealistic. <laughs> um, and then we end up just feeling ashamed. Like, why do I right, feel right. like this? Why do I feel sad? Why do I feel angry? I'm not meant to be having these emotions I must be doing mm-hmm. something wrong and of course the irony is that if we're able to just you know have the emotional literacy to be able to label the emotion and then if we're if we're able to just be with that emotion and maybe that means you know not working on what we thought we were going to yep. be working on today because actually we're having a hard time and there's some sadness we need to deal with these things actually do pass a lot quicker and we can return to some sort of like equilibrium and I wouldn't say like necessarily happiness and joy mm-hmm. all the time, but some sort of just like, I know what I'm going for is just contentment. Yeah. To be right, able to exactly. kind of just like roll with the ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a really good way to put it. I'm not aiming for feeling happy all the time. I'm just aiming for yeah feeling content and feeling like I can handle the flow. Um, right, exactly, and to know that the downs are coming and the ups are coming and that they're going to probably come one after the other, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Surrender. Surrender, yeah. Well, that's that's the uh, one of the, the, the big lessons. Um, mm-hmm. and, absolutely. And are there uh, – what kind of forms of meditation have you experimented with? Have you done breathe work? Well, you mentioned um, – kundalini yoga so doing movements Mm -hmm. and things like that but have you done breathe work and other stuff like that um to do like consciousness exploration yeah vipassana has always been my focus like kind of uh buddhist meditation i've I've done a lot of uh long and short retreats um which really uh i don't know enrich my practice and i'm actually studying at the moment with jack kornfeld and tara brack to become a certified mindfulness meditation teacher which is just a fascinating course love doing this People all around the world doing this course, um, kind of digging into not just the mindfulness, but also, you know, generosity and gratitude mm-hmm. practices, the kind of more heart opening side um, of the Buddhist teachings, um, loving kindness meditations, but all kind of focusing around um, this, I suppose I would, I would call it like contemplative practices mm-hmm. as opposed to more like transcendental or mantra based practices. I've, I've dabbled here and there, but that's really mm-hmm. less my my wheelhouse and in terms of movement um you know movement is is i think an essential part um of any meditation practice because again getting back to the fact that it is a practice and we're meant to be mm-hmm. learning something with that we can then apply through our day-to-day lives like our life is movement you know there's, yep. there's got to be that as well so i can tell you that on the last weekend the weekend before i was doing just a day meditation retreat um in tel aviv and um going through like a challenging personal period and I realized that just sitting down and being with the breath was incredibly difficult for me and this is something that comes up for a lot of people the breath you know can be where you talk about the breath being very relaxing and it's something we can tap into but it can also be really triggering and it can also bring up past traumas Mm -hmm. and it can also you know be a reminder of anxiety or tightness Mm -hmm. in the chest um so what I you know the real insight for me of that like kind of 10 hours of straight meditation was I need to be focusing on on different parts of the my physical experience at the moment. So I noticed that even bringing my attention into my hands and my feet 
was a lot less difficult for me. And then that was like, I could just be with those sensations. And honestly, like, it probably sounds crazy to anyone who's listening, who's not dabbled in this sort of thing, but I've spent hours, but like hours sitting meditation, focusing just on the sensations in the tip of my little finger. <laughs> and like, there yeah. are all these sensations going on in your mm -hmm. body and in your mind, by the way, Absolutely. you're just not aware of until you train your attention to be able to focus on it. Um, so, you know, I think it's like all under the, the, the basic umbrella of uh, Vipassana meditation, but there's, there's a lot of different, you know, very rich body of practices that, that I've, uh, that I use. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. The, um, the role of, of movement in, in trying to quiet down that mental chatter. I've, mm -hmm. I've found strong benefit, even, um, just in like, uh, I have a distinct memory of like a, a weird kind of, um, I don't know, sort of like spiritual breakthrough or something that I had when I was in the middle of college. And I was just repetitively kicking around a soccer ball. Like that's all I was mm. doing. Yeah, it was just me and two other friends and we're just kind of kicking this ball back and forth. But we kind of got in this mode where, you know, we're not we weren't talking. We we're just silently just kicking this ball around hmm. and we were all thinking about stuff. We had uh, different things on our minds and we're kind of going through a crazy period of time. And I remember recognizing in that moment that just the repetitive uh, actions of just kicking this ball around and focusing on that and the, the uh, what my brain needed to do in order to like keep that going, you know, all of a sudden you recognize like, oh, there's all of a sudden this space in my consciousness that like mm -hmm. wasn't there before um, and being able to like keep that going and just flow with that. And I think we sat there and kicked that ball for like three hours, um, just like standing in silence and just all of us going through whatever we're going through. And it was later on, I looked back on that. I was like, we went through like, that was a meditative practice that we just did, mm -hmm. um, you know, without really recognizing it, that we just got into these, these actions, these flows of rhythms of movement and and then our minds went wherever they went and we even later had like a uh, kind of like a breakdown and integrative kind of conversation to talk about all the things that were because it got to a point where it's like we've spent three hours here silently kicking this ball is someone going to talk about what we're going through <laughs> yeah. and um, i mean there's a there's a term for that what you were experiencing that's called access concentration mm. the point where like the mind settles enough to be able to focus on the observe the object of observation and there's like what you what you described of like the kind of clearing that's generally what practitioners will describe that it suddenly felt like there was space that like there are still thoughts and mm -hmm. there are still sensations but you're not in them it's yes. like as soon as you create an observer you have some space mm -hmm. it's like well if i can see this going on then that's not me so where's me mm -hmm. and whatever that's that's a total rabbit hole that i guess we'll probably have to get into on oh, another I, conversation yeah, no, of like yeah <laughs> I'm the, totally with who you. are we and do we exist maybe we don't need to go to that um, but yeah, that's a very powerful uh, state of mind to be able to access, you know, whether it's kicking around a soccer ball or, or getting with the breath. I know that my early meditation experiences, which I also didn't know were meditation, were like trying to calm myself down and go to sleep at the end of the day. And someone had told me to like count my breaths or something mm -hmm, like that. So mm -hmm. I would lie in bed counting my breaths. And years later, when I started to practice 
you know, formal meditation, I realized that these states I was accessing were very familiar to me from, you know, those, those mm-hmm. experiences when I was a child and just focusing on the breath. And it's like, you don't have to know you're meditating in order to be meditating in yeah, order exactly. to have, you know, these benefits and experiences. Oh yeah. I, I think about that a lot with um, like uh, much older cultures when there was a lot less written down and, and shared and things and people just experienced these things without any intellectual mm-hmm. context around them. You know, they just were yep. what they were. Um, and it, it, it's just interesting to think it, it's almost like impossible to have that experience now because I have too much intellectual baggage around all of this stuff. It, you know, it'd be cool to be able to go back to my like high school self um, just to like re-experience like raw consciousness expanding activities yeah. without any sort of intellectual commentary on them or anything. Uh, another thing I want to <laughs> ask you, great. just because this is something fascinating to me and ties into my own interest with consciousness, um, but not everybody that's interested in consciousness is interested in this, but we'll see. Um, do you have any experiences with lucid dreaming? You know, I find this incredibly interesting and I haven't. There was a period when I decided I was going to try and train myself mm-hmm. um, to, I'm, I'm sure you know all of these techniques, yeah. but I, I never had much success with it. I guess you're into it? Uh, well, um, yes and no. I There was a period of my life where I was really into it um, because I've always had uh, very vivid dreams anyway. And then as I started to learn about lucid dreaming, and learned that some of my experiences I had were lucid dreams. And then I realized that those experiences were not very common. I then started to dream journal and try to get my dream mm. recollection improved, which worked really, really well, but it was also kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of a, a positive and negative thing because when your dream recall gets to a certain degree, it kind of messes up with your sense of time because like, mm when you're sleeping and having all these experiences and you wake up and you feel like you've spent like two weeks, you know, living another life. And then you're waking up in this one and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, it can be very disorienting. Um, and I haven't taken it very seriously in probably eight to 10 years or so, but every now and then I still get them, but it's just something that, um, anytime I'm talking to someone about, you know, trying to understand consciousness or something, it's, definitely something that um i think about a lot as far as just what role dreams play you know in our uh mental landscape and what we can learn about our own awareness and experience of the world through dreams is something i find um super super interesting there's a book just called lucid dreaming um that's really really good that kind of i remember that I, it's interesting also to tie this back to cannabis too yeah. so i can tell you that i don't remember my dreams most of the time when i'm using cannabis and then any time where i like you know take a tolerance break or i'm traveling or whatever mm-hmm. it's like whoa what is this <laughs> yeah. and then it's yeah. like the whole next day is like how am i meant to go about my day and like act like everything's normal when all this crazy shit happened in here last yes, night yes yes yeah. very distracting so i can imagine that if you were having like you know full-on lucid dreams, uh, it can be very disorientating. Yeah, and, uh, the, uh, and I think that's one thing that, that, that pulled me out of it because I started using cannabis um, like regularly as a medical patient uh, around 10 years ago or so. Um, and I don't remember a lot of my dreams anymore, but like you said, if you take a 
uh, take a break, they come back really, really vividly. Or mm-hmm. sometimes you take like a nice dose of melatonin or something, you'll you'll get vivid dreams again. But um, um, yeah, that's just something I, I wanted to see if you had any experience with just because it's um, a fascinating, fascinating world. Um, and just the idea of what uh, human beings are capable of experiencing is uh, yeah <laughs> um, super super fascinating unlimited yeah no really um, and it's cool to to learn that you're you're wanting to teach folks how to come back to the present moment teach people how to you know I really think of this as like a like you mentioned before almost like a superhero kind of power it is a tool um, and being able to empower people with that tool. Um, is super exciting. I know we're coming up on the hour. I always lose track of time. So I, <laughs> yeah. I need to bring things back around. Um, but I guess one last question I'll ask you to bring it back to cannabis before we wrap up. Um, looking on the, the last several years and, you know, you mentioned how much you've learned uh, through the Kenigma, um, you know, just uh, about basic science around cannabis and everything. What are a couple of things that stand out to you that you've learned about the cannabis, about the science of cannabis um, from seeing the articles that, you know, the writers at the Kenigma are putting together and seeing the feedback from uh, readers and everything. What are just like two or three kind of um, uh, substantial things in your mind that you've learned that you didn't know about cannabis before uh, you started working with the Kenigma? Wow, there are so many, but I think I can kind of like crystallize it. So it's like, you know, the the big learning for me, I think is probably the exact same, you know, education points that I would like to get out to as many people as possible. So number one, there are different types of cannabis, (laughs) you know, as we were talking about before, I simply didn't know that. And when you think about the impact that this can have on regulators, on healthcare providers, on, I mean, bud tenders presumably know this as well, on on consumers and potential consumers, understanding that there are different types of cannabis, that they have different effects, that there are non-intoxicating types of cannabis, that there are, you know, cannabis, uh, types of cannabis that do have this kind of like high or euphoric effect. Simple fact that there are different types. So that's number one. Yeah. Um, Dosing. Um, or more specifically, the biphasic effect of cannabis. I find really fascinating the fact that at a low dose, um, cannabis can actually have, an, you know, THC specifically, but also CBD mm-hmm. can have the opposite effect at a low dose than it does at a high dose. And yeah. this is something which, again, if I look at like my early cannabis experience, I was experiencing this, I just didn't know. Yeah, like the yeah. fact that at a low dose, cannabis can be really settling on the stomach and in a high dose, it can actually have you greening out and throwing up <laughs> and feeling very nauseous. Um, you know, the same is true for other substances, of course, as well. We know that, you know, after one glass of alcohol, you might be very social and, and kind of engage with people. And after six glasses, you might be a complete asshole yelling at people <laughs> and throwing things, you know? Um, so so that I think is, is uh, really powerful information. And I guess the third one, and this is really the kicker, especially when it comes to medical, medical cannabis, is that we have an endocannabinoid system and that it regulates all different functions in the human body um, and that this is the reason that cannabis can be effective for such a plethora of different symptoms and conditions. And, of course, you know, I know you could spend hours on any of those <laughs> topics and I could probably spend at least a few minutes on each of them. Um, but, you know, this is, it is a very basic and I think very powerful uh, pieces of information. No, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, those are you know, core, you know, what I would call foundational understandings. Um, 
that you know if you only had 10 seconds to teach somebody the most important things they need to know before they go out into the world of cannabis i think those are those are definitely 10 seconds yeah it's like well, one yeah. to cannabis you've got the system <laughs> yeah. in your body um yeah um yeah no i think i think those are those are uh uh yeah really good um little nuggets of knowledge that each of them easily unpacks into some very interesting and um fascinating nuances uh that you yeah, can spend sure. days and days and days um learning about so uh well this has been great i've really really enjoyed uh the hour that we've been able to to spend together and unpacking all the stuff and i'm I like the fact that even though we spun out into the discussion about mindfulness and consciousness exploration, that it all repeatedly tied back to cannabis. So, um, I have all roads laid back to weed. Right, exactly. <laughs> These days, especially, yeah, weed and psychedelics. It seems like um, that's it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get onto that next time. I know. Yeah, um, I saved that because it's like that's an hour in and of itself. Yeah, um, yeah. don't open that Pandora's box. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed chatting with you as well, and uh, I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Yeah. And as we sign off, um, let all of our listeners know um, how to find the Kenigma and and as well as um, yourself personally. If there's anything you want to share, um, the last uh, couple of minutes here are yours. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's easy where to find the Kenigma. That's at Kenigma.com, www.kenigma, C-A-N-N-I-G-N-A. Uh, we're also on, you know, all the major social networks. You'll be able to find us pretty easily. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Alana Goldberg. Um, something particularly interesting that we put out recently that could be cool uh, for all of you listening to check out is our cookbook. Nice. Uh, we, we collaborated with uh, Chef Jordan Wagman up in Toronto to create uh, a cookbook of you know basic recipes and then some sweets and savouries. Uh, so if you go to kenigma.com slash cookbook, you can download a free copy there. And uh, we're going to have a cultivation guide coming out later in the year. So uh, stay nice. tuned for that. Awesome. Yeah. All right, everybody, those of you that listened all the way through, go check all of that out. So you said that cookbook is free? That's right. Yeah, nice. it's downloadable. Awesome. Well, yeah, go check all of that out and find the Kenigma. And if you want to find Curious About Cannabis, you probably already know where to find us. But we're at <laughs> CACpodcast.com. And again, on most of the social networks, primarily on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Um, so with that, everybody, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye, everyone. If you're curious about cannabis like me, then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds, and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more. Or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.